0: There's a tendency to want to be like other people who are in that position. So, for instance, if your head of research is a certain way and their skills are X, Y, Z, you believe that you have to have those same skills to be in that position. And someone told me a long time ago, um, before I became the CIO, they said, the role is whatever you make of it. And so just having widening your aperture to say, what what type of director of research do I want to be? What type of analyst do I want to be? Um, What are my strengths and what can I bring to the table for the company?
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged.
2: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn.
3: Thanks for the introduction, Niels. Uh, today I'm delighted to be joined by Shannon kosher. Shannon is Chief Investment Officer of SVP Private, the private banking arm of uh, Silicon Valley Bank in Boston. SVP is a $17 billion RIA and Shannon has been involved in financial markets for going on a couple of decades now in a variety of roles. She's a frequent speaker and commentator on markets. Shannon, it's great to have you here today. How is all on your side?
0: Doing well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me and and good morning here in a very sunny Boston uh, this morning here in November.
3: Good stuff. Well, uh, it's great to have you on and is, you know, it's typical for us uh, just to get started to hear a little bit about the background of the person we're speaking to. So could you just give us a, an outline of your experience, how you got involved in financial markets and what took you to your current role as CIO?
0: Absolutely. Uh, it's it was a little bit of a, a path for me, uh, you know, kind of going into college. I really expected to be in the medical field. Actually, I was uh pre-med Looking to be an epidemiologist, which prior to the pandemic over the last couple of years, really no one knew what an epidemiologist d- does did at the time, unless they had seen the uh, the movie Outbreak, uh, which you, if you recall, followed some uh, some CDC epidemiologists. Uh, but you know, coming into my sophomore year of college, I, I fell in love with economics and decided that I wanted to do something as it related to economics in my in my career. Really anticipated actually being in academia, uh, but got a job right out of school at State Street, which was a, a large custodial bank here in Boston. Spent about six years or so really on an institutional consulting path there and decided that I wanted to switch over and be in the private wealth world. Um, so joined a very small, what was at the time, I was the 10th employee of about a $900 million RIA, um, and really got to wear almost every hat from an investment perspective in the 16 years since I joined that small RIA. So really, I've done everything from fixed income and equity trading, um, equity analysis, equity portfolio management. But I spent the bulk of my career in asset allocation, portfolio construction, and manager selection, allocating capital, building portfolios, attempting to find new opportunities that would be complementary and diversifying for our clients. And um, coming into this role, I've been the the chief investment officer now for about four and a half years.
3: Okay, great. And in terms of the types of portfolios that you're running, obviously, it's a private wealth RIA business. Could you give us a sense on the types of portfolios, investment objectives? uh, What's the kind of typical profile of the clients that you deal with?
0: Well, it's so interesting because as we've come together between uh, my legacy firm, Boston Private, and and SVB to form SVB Private last year, uh, one of the things that we've noticed is that we have a a much broader set of clients and solution sets that we really need to apply in order to meet their goals. Uh, You know, we were sort of historically in the, um, what I would say, already wealthy camp, Uh, many entrepreneurs, business owners, uh, real estate uh, developers. It, that were our sort of traditional client. Now we have uh, the new clients that we have in coming from the innovation economy where they're still very much in growth mode re- looking to uh, potentially, you know, continue to invest in different companies. Um, we also have a lot of VC and PE um principles uh on our as part of our clients and so the solutions that we really provide are trying to think about it in terms of three what i would say are three buckets that generally tend to lend to outcomes whether it, we start with liquidity as we all know uh, particularly those of us who who suffered through the uh uh the financial crisis liquidity can be at a premium um you know when you when it's uh least Uh, easy to unleash it. And so uh, one of the things that we really talk about with our clients is making sure that we understand the liquidity they need and also to be able to utilize that liquidity Across a number of parameters to make it work best for them, and then the, on the other side of the equation, kind of all the way on the other end of the spectrum is what we call aspirational assets. And you know, for many of our clients, that is that are that may be assets that they already hold, or they may be assets that they have through their professional experience. And so, um, in that bucket, what we're really looking for is asymmetric sources of return and risk. Um, if you think about, you know, the 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 parameters around that, that could include uh, lower or no liquidity. It could include, a you know, a potential for perhaps more concentration than we would accept in a more traditional marketable portfolio. And then in the middle is, is sort of the growth part. And I would say that's where you get, you know, whether it's alpha or beta, but really in, from a marketable securities portfolio. So sizing those three, across a client's situation and for a client's situation is really how we think about asset allocation. So although, you know, we do utilize what I would say is a traditional asset allocation framework for our client reporting and the way that we uh, lay out the portfolios for clients, those three, what I would call buckets, are really the way that we determine the right outcome for our clients or the right potential outcome for clients. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about if there are specific investments that we're looking to uh, vet or potentially include on the platform, where do they fit in one of those three? And are the are our expectations for those um, investments, solutions, strategies consistent with what we're trying to derive from those classifications?
3: Okay, interesting. And and you mentioned how you've kind of had that evolution in the client mix over time. So presumably, their weightings in those three buckets are are, are a bit different. Is is that fair to say?
0: It is fair to say, although one of the, I would say, misconceptions about um, younger clients, and I I really – I don't know that I I fully embraced this misconception previously, but many people do, is that younger clients are uh, more – have a higher risk appetite. And actually what we're finding is that having gone through the financial crisis when they were probably, you know, just maybe have just been entering the workforce and then having the pandemic occur, there's a lot of younger clients that I think are perhaps more risk averse than we would sort of model them through a traditional financial planning software, if you will. Um, And so really trying to understand uh, what are the drivers? What is the the reason that they... um, they are investing. What are the drivers for their their wealth in terms of long term goals? And it seems that we're entering a phase, at least just from my anecdotal experiences, uh, that you know this this idea of accepting a reasonable return for perhaps a little less risk seems like it's more palatable to to younger folks. And and perhaps that goes back, and we you know, I, I this is just conjecture. Perhaps it does have to do with the fact that they do have a a long runway for earning and so they're not they're not worried about retirement per se and and for many of them they're not even really worried about things like education or um, housing, they're still in that sort of prime spot of just consumption. And so um, I think, you know, not really sort of knowing that they're going to continue to work for a long period of time and that the expectations are that they're going to make enough from an income perspective to really supplement allows them to perhaps be a little bit less less risk on than, than clients who are closer to retirement and looking to really maximize their portfolio.
3: Interesting, kind of the opposite of what you might expect. Absolutely. Um, really, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it, uh, we can get into markets in a minute, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into in depth, but one of the things I've been thinking about is we've had this very sharp um, change in the landscape. You know, interest rates in the US have gone basically from zero and the message is they're going to 5%, which is, a, I guess, a huge shift because, you know, for the last number of years, a lot of investment behaviours were motivated towards, you know, how could you generate... Two, three, four percent, and now you can pick up five percent just by, um, well, n- not yet. But if if you believe Jay Powell, you'll get it from uh, you'll get it from T bills pretty soon. So, do you think that's going to have a big shift in terms of investor behavior, or are you sensing that already, or how are you thinking about that?
0: I do think it's going to be a big shift, and and I know that it's um, this has been an incredibly painful year, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. I mean, I think that um, investment professionals uh, tend to operate in the historical precedents and, and those, and, and the, the, the acknowledgement that we know that, you know, things like if you look at equity markets over a period of time, they go up over time. And if you look at significant drawdowns, you can go back sort of in history and see that those those drawdowns were were, were regained and that there were additional gains on top of that, you know, post a severe drawdown. But in the moment, that's obviously very difficult. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that this has been a really challenging year. However, um, I would say that you know, we're ent- this entry into a more normalized environment, pers- per- particularly from a yield perspective, is going to result in two things. One, obviously, as you noted, there's going to be opportunities. There are alternatives, um, and there are, you know, probably, alt more alternatives that afford uh, a return that is reasonable uh, with less risk. And I think that that's not a situation that we've been in um, really for much of the last decade. I mean, I you know, we did see a rate hiking cycle prior to the pandemic, but it was very slow and sluggish. And there was really no, um, I would say, momentum or enthusiasm around it because, you know, there were so... Um, we, we were really hamstrung in terms of, of inflation on the deflationary side. So um, it was difficult for the Fed to get really aggressive so I would say this more normalized yield environment produces more opportunities, but I also think it produces, um, and maybe this is sort of a longer term trend, it'll be interesting to see if this is borne out in the data. I think it 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 probably creates um, more responsible capital allocation across the board. And so, um, you know, there's, there's, much to be said right now in terms of what sort of excess have we been funding with with zero interest rates here in the United States and globally. Frankly, we're not the only um, the only people who've engineered um, you know some speculation from an asset perspective uh, here in the U.S. But I think it's it's thinking about does this create you know a better crop of management teams? Does this create uh, you know r- more realistic expectations for investors in terms of long term returns? Do we enter an environment where, you know, capital is is seen as dear um, rather than disposable? And does that create, you know, perhaps even, you know, stronger forces for economic growth? That That's sort of how I look at this. So the short term is, is a lot of pain and probably some continued pain and headwinds over the next couple of years as we reset to this environment. Um, but the important thing to remember, too, is that, you know, whether it's 4% or 5% or, I mean, I guess even five and a half or six percent, although that seems rather unlikely if you if you take our opinion on that, it, it that that shouldn't be enough to hinder the economy from growing um, at some point. And so I, I think that, you know, you just kind of have to look out the other side and say, OK, are there some, you know, some positive unintended consequences or intended consequences from this activity? Um, and I and I think I'm in the boat that, that there are.
3: Okay. And I mean, you touched on capital allocation and, you know, uh, we might see more responsible capital allocation. And, and obviously what's come with this uh, rising rate environment has been a reassessment in technology stocks in particular. And, uh, you know, I mean, you could argue that that maybe that that's evident of that, or you could say, you know, there's been a shift in sentiment. There seems to be a lot more pessimism around the space. And, you know, some of the you know, hopes um, in terms of the expectations for growth and adaptation and network effects and all of these things. Uh, there seems to be a, a reappraisal of that. Um, from somebody in your seat, uh, you know, how do you balance all of that in terms of thinking about? You know, obviously there's going to be ups and downs in the in the stock market over time, and, and you want to capture the growth in, in companies, but you want to be, I guess, cognizant of these potential uh, um, structural shifts. So, so how are you thinking about that particular theme?
0: so in terms of a structural shift i mean especially when you think about um you sort of could take it from a number of different directions if you think about it from the inflation impact um, technology is inherently deflationary and we've heard a lot about that now there's a broad sweeping um evaluation of that statement that implies that inflation's not a problem and i i don't interpret that statement to be that way. But if you think about technology as a force for what we've seen, even over the last 20 years, I mean, I, I would I would say that, in, you know, the lack of wage inflation for the 10 years prior to the pandemic was, was almost entirely attributable to a combination of globalization and technology, right? So if you have those two sort of forces, um, I think technology also is... Um, we're we're really entering into uh, an environment where technology as a sector, technology as a segregated investment opportunity, looking at it in that through that lens is probably limiting in terms of you know what you think about technology in a future state. If you think that technology is going to continue to create disruption, innovation, and perhaps most importantly in a constrained labor environment, more productivity and more efficiency then you should be looking at the application of technology across all businesses and not necessarily just how, you know, those companies that are producing that technology or or, or creating that technology. And so, I think the other thing that's happened is that there was a, a lot of um, spending in terms of technology. And so, you know, corporations were spending a significant amount, particularly at the enterprise level on technology, but even in the consumer, we, you know, we've increased our technology spend as a percentage of our wallet over the course of the last 10 years. Um, and I think that it created a proliferation of Me Too technologies. And, um, and, and I think that this is a, you know, a, a uh, probably a right sizing of um, the repackaging of, of kind of similar um, whether it's software as a service uh, but just kind of similar go to market because there was so much capital so there didn't need to be necessarily um, as much attention paid to who would win because everybody was winning mm-hmm. And so um I I would caution um on saying, you know, sort of we're entering this new world, we're back to fixed asset investments, um, fixed asset companies are going to continue to thrive and and be sort of the leaders. That may be the case from an asset, you know, price perspective, at least in the near term, but that's partially because, you know, technology companies have performed so well and and a lot of that. Performance has been, you know, loaded into the you know prior five or six years. So I look at it more in terms of I think that, you know, my belief is that technology continues to fuel the economy a- across industries and sectors, and that companies that are um, effectively and um, dynamically utilizing technology to improve their businesses will end up being better off. And so companies that are producing technology solutions that can help other companies do that, I think will continue to be a driving force for growth in the economy.
3: Okay, so, I mean, taking a step back and we kind of jumped from kind of the, the, the general philosophy into straight into markets, but if we were to go back and think about, you know, you talked about the kind of three buckets in terms of liquidity, aspirational assets and, and growth. It, 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 How does that then um, move from there to kind of thinking about asset allocation and 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 constructing portfolios? What what's the kind of framework or kind of overall investment philosophy that that drives that portfolio construction process?
0: Sure. So um, when I made my move from the institutional sort of consulting world into private wealth management, you know that was right around two thousand and six, and so you know I, I we were really caught up in um, what is the sort of the next phase of investments look like and and if you recall during that period for US investors um, US investments really weren't outperforming there you know this was the the, the renaissance of um, international developed and emerging markets equities um you know many clients were asking why do i even own you know stocks in the US this is sort of a it was a, it was a difficult um it was a, it was a challenging time for for U.S. companies. It was a challenging time to get excited about um, growth and momentum here in the United States. And so, one of the things that we um, we try to think about is, um, you know, how has the landscape changed over time? The other thing that was happening then was really this passive versus active debate really started to to, to set up and and build its foundation. And so, coming out of the financial crisis and really thinking about um, the, uh, the reallocation to a lot of passive strategies. I think we just took a big step back over the last probably seven or eight years and said, what is, you know, what does that active passive debate mean to us? And what is it actually, what are the implications of that? And our view is that it's important to, to actively allocate capital, um, at the highest level. However, you know, if you think about that second, Part of the decision tree, it's like, well, what are you trying to accomplish with that capital allocation? And so, are you attempting to capture the beta of a particular market, or do you think that there's enough alpha to uncover? And so, the way we think about portfolios is that we're always balancing the opportunity with the costs, and costs are both fees and and um, taxes. So, many but most of our clients are private clients, so we we live in a a taxable asset world. Um, and so if you think about that then you say okay well I probably want to be the most active in the places where the alpha should be present at a higher at a higher rate and that's in you know less efficient asset classes and so um, fully believe in active allocation um, and fully believe in the in the ability for managers to uh, engineer alpha in less efficient asset classes, but certainly believe that for many U.S. investors, you know, a a lot of their core exposure is probably going to be in low cost, tax efficient exposure just to capture that beta. And so it's a little bit more of a like second and third derivative type conversation in terms of our portfolio construction, but it just comes back to, you know, where do you Where do you spend your money, if you will, from a cost and tax perspective?
3: So it's kind of like a core satellite uh, with a lot of some passive exposures for certain core exposures and then being willing to pay for certain strategies and um, markets, is that it?
0: Yeah. And and I think so. I think a lot of people um, dilute that down completely to say, okay, all of our marketable exposure will be you know, passive or factor-based exposure. We're not even going to bother with it. And, and and we take a little bit more of a nuanced view. For instance, um, we believe that that the bond market, for instance, is still very inefficient. And there's still a lot of opportunities if you're buying individual bonds um, to be able to not only potentially pick up better performance, potentially, but more importantly, if we think about... Um, that liquidity bucket that I talked about earlier, the, the the best way to align your clients' assets and liabilities um, is through a, a a portfolio of you know consistently maturing vehicles that pro- provide cash without a transaction cost, right? So, um, individual bond portfolios are a great example of. Well, that's maybe not the most efficient way to um, e- express that exposure, if you will but it's a way that you can actually add real value um, from that perspective. So, yeah, I would I would say, I mean, this is and this has been at least for me a change in viewpoint over time. You know, I would, you know, if we had talked, we had had this this particular podcast probably with much um much, much inferior technology back in 2006, um, we would have, we would have been talking about how um, very much believed in active management at all levels at the top level, as well as at the implementation level and that, um, but, you know, the landscape has changed um, and the information advantage, particularly for um, U.S. stock analysts and portfolio managers has really been diminished um, through regulation. And so, If you're not, if you're all working off the same information and um, the market moves quickly and, and reacts, you know, whether or not you believe in the efficient market hypothesis or not, the U.S. large cap equity market reacts pretty darn quickly um, to new information. So I I think that, you know, that's where you're, you're maybe, there's tougher sledding. Now, with that said... You know, there there are some benefits of active management in that space, particularly um, if you're um, working around existing positions. If there are, um, if you have a really strong team, if you have a a viewpoint that there's a particular factor, like dividends, for instance, that are incredibly important for your clients active management even in US large cap can make sense. But it's just always thinking about, again, going back to the intent of your allocation. Why am I making this allocation? That should be driving what vehicle you're using or what strategy you're using to implement.
3: Okay, fair enough. Um, it's interesting. I was I saw an article that it's 50 years since uh, a random walk down Wall Street. It was written. I, have the, I think Burton Lockhart was been um, interviewed in the Wall Street Journal. So the, the the message in that book seems still to be uh, hold true. He was, I think, a fan of passive and avoid o- Uncle Sam was the other, one of the other core tenets of that one. So it sounds like you're still very much embracing that. And um, you mentioned it's been a very tough year, which obviously it has. Equities and bonds, both. You know, obviously bonds having a, whatever worst year in ever, at least in the last kind of uh, century or so. Um, is that something that you had? I suppose. Yeah, transition portfolios uh, for at a time, where I mean, in terms of diversification, had had thought about that kind of scenario, um, from an asset allocation perspective, and then secondly, now that we've had that big sell off, does that mean is that motivated very different kind of asset allocation uh, looking forward?
0: So, I just to be candid, um, you know, I, I we certainly were not expecting inflation to be as hot for as long as it has been this year. Um, you know, I think coming into the year, we anticipated inflation to be the biggest challenge for the markets, and and particularly as it relates to Fed policy, um, we were more optimistic, frankly, coming into the year about uh, Europe. Uh, we really felt like there were opportunities there um, to. We were going to see a, a, you know, sort of broader economic recovery. Yes, we were going to see inflation, but all of the economies are going to be dealing with inflation. And so the war in Ukraine really upset a lot of our thesis kind of coming into this year, just in terms of the the undue um, and and frankly, uh, compounded pressure on Europe um, and the UK based on what we're seeing from a energy supply situation. We were... Um, we actually came into the year knowing that bonds were going to be under some pressure and we had been structurally underweight for most of our portfolios to sort of our, what we would call our long-term strategic targets. Um, and the, you know, the reason for that was we didn't feel like we were from a yield perspective really being compensated for the, for the duration risk that we were anticipating. And, um, that proved to be true. (laughs) Um, but what I would say is that, um, you know, we had added some real assets exposure over the last several years. We we had talked, we had added some exposure um, to our platform, at least. Um, obviously, you know, for each client, the the scenario is different. But we had added some exposure to what I would say are more um, kind of structured um, opportunities that had higher correlation, whether it was to inflation or to commodities. And so those um, proved to be um, fortuitous during this year. And then in the middle of the year, um, you know, sort of towards the end of the summer, you know, we just looked at the the risk reward opportunity um, in the fixed income market, for instance, and and um, actually increased back to our neutral weight um, from a bond perspective. Just feeling like a lot of the pain, there could continue to be some residual pain, but a lot of the pain had probably. Um, been felt, or at least the bulk of that, in our assessment, and so our view was, um, you know, with yields where they are, you know, you're you are getting compensated, if you will, for some of the duration risk, which you certainly weren't getting compensated for in two thousand and twenty and two thousand and twenty one. So, um, so yeah, that's that's definitely changed. I mean, if you if you think about. A sharp ratio, for instance, and you know, trying to maximize the amount of return for the risk. A lot of people think about that as just maximizing the return part. But lowering the risk level, you know, that that can do a lot to improve your sharp ratio as well. And so um I, I think that was where we really wanted to to try to increase um the potential opportunity to at least lower our risk and produce a, a, a similar return, if not a better return.
3: Yeah. And that move back to neutral, I guess, is that reflecting, I mean, is it a, a belief that we're that the world hasn't fundamentally changed and that, you know, maybe some of the themes that might've been in place before this spike might come back or or, I guess, put another way, you know, the whole are some of those disinflationary forces you mentioned globalization technology earlier do you think they're still lurking in the background there once we get over kind of this very strong period of of aggregate demand or or how are you thinking about all of that
0: um i would say that you don't even have to look at it in terms of getting back to deflation i just think we're going back to a lower growth environment and so you know one of the things we don't one of the things that that I think gets lost in the shuffle a little bit from 2018 and 2019 in particular was that you know we were in a manufacturing recession here in the United States um, due to the the trade war with China we were experiencing incredibly slow growth um, from a GDP perspective there really wasn't a catalyst for any sort of escape velocity for the economy and um, if you think about a low growth environment that. That implies that you don't have a a secular economic tailwind to be able to produce top and bottom line results, and so I just go back to if we if we're back in a low growth environment, then it comes back to execution. But it also it does imply that you know inflation will ease, um, and that you know the 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 opportunities for more nuanced you know potential in you know on a company-by-company basis uh, becomes more important. And so not that I would say, because we haven't obviously seen the rising tide lift all boats in the course of the last couple of years, but you certainly have felt like that, you know, kind of big Russian demand um, and activity coming out of the summer of 2020 and the return um, certainly helped a lot of businesses um, really were gaining growth on the top and bottom line, and and that's why we're seeing expectations for earnings growth come down next year. It's not it's not entirely due to the fact that we've seen we're expecting this contraction in economic activity or the depth of, or or implying there's a depth of that contraction that's expected. It's really well a lot of what you have has probably been pulled forward, and these growth rates are probably um, not sustainable. So going back to a lower growth environment just it, it really puts the emphasis on companies to engineer their own growth, um, whether it's through a number of things, M& A, buybacks, um, you know new products, capbacks. I mean there's there's a lot of ways you can engineer growth from a, from a revenue perspective, but um, most companies were not doing a great job of that prior to the pandemic because they were really focused just on financial engineering.
3: And you mentioned, you know, in terms of having some diversification in a portfolio uh, with real assets um, and then certain structured opportunities that were kind of um, had a beta to to commodities. Um, have you a place in the portfolios or do you look at more hedge fund or alternative risk premium type strategies in, in that context for diversification? Or is that a challenge in terms of the kind of costs and taxes and, and vehicles or, or how do you think about accessing those types of strategies if at all?
0: So it's a really good question um, and I would say that our, our interest in those areas has been cyclical uh, and so if we go back to just prior to the pandemic the couple of years there I mean I would be I mean our exposure to what I would I deem I guess, what you call traditional hedge fund strategies. So equity long, short, short relative credit, um, you know, managed futures. Um, it was pretty low. And it was pretty low because we felt like there really weren't, um, especially from a trend-following perspective, you know, I, I think um, we did a, um, we did, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with one of my colleagues in the bank on, uh, FX for instance and just looking at you know uh, if you think about you think about central bank policy and how consistently similar that was you know doesn't create a lot of opportunities there and I would say that you know sort of goes for the commodity markets too we really didn't see a lot of demand. Um, and so um, you know even you know interest rates and and duration and derivatives on that very difficult to make money in this in that environment what's really changed is sort of what we touched on at the top of the top of the podcast is you know there is potentially some bifurcation, differentiation, nuance now in what's happening in the markets and that really does speak to managers who are making not only a positive call on something but also a shorter negative call and um and so i would say the other thing that we anticipate happening, so that sort of speaks to equity long short, right? And 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 whether you do that in sort of a, um, sec, you know, on a on a limited sort of sector basis, or whether you're in a, a broad portfolio, um, is really a question for what your appetite is. But I mean, I think if you look at um, sector and industry uh, specific long short funds, that's it's a really interesting space right now. Um, the other thing that I would say that, um may become more of a opportunity, but I don't know if it's as good an opportunity in the hedge fund structure as it is in more of a traditional drawdown structure is in the credit market. Um, you know, we really haven't, for for such a difficult year um, and so much uncertainty, we really haven't seen a meaningful impact on spreads. And, you know, we haven't hit this wall. I mean, if you go back several years i mean how many how many market notes did i write about this refinancing wall of worry for triple b debt right i mean that was just like everybody was concerned about that coming in you know prior to the pandemic eventually the fed was going to raise rates all of these companies were going to have to refinance at higher rates it was you know huge wall of worry um it's still there. <laughs> no one talks about it anymore because we haven't seen, we really haven't seen the spread widening that everyone would have expected in this uncertain environment. Um, but I think that there's probably what, some opportunity in credit. What do you think credit.
3: that is? I'm, I mean, because I was yeah. lo- noticing that, I was looking at some data earlier on and looking at the different ETFs and the HYG hadn't seemed to have suffered as badly as emerging market debt or, or investment grade. And uh, I was a bit perplexed about that. Yeah, it, what what given all you said about, uh, it was such a theme in kind of end of 2019. Um, now, obviously, I guess a lot of firms refinance and the Fed did bail out the credit market in March 2020, but presumably a lot of that debt will have to be refinanced at some point again. And is there, yeah, is that not a problem on people's radars? Or, um, and you're clearly thinking about the opportunity that will eventually follow that.
0: Well, I and I because I I think people are less worried about it because I don't think it will be um, I don't think it will be a wall, right? I think there'll be you know fissures in that wall that create opportunity um, because I I think companies have come into this um, they came into the pandemic, for instance, with you know much stronger balance sheets than one would have potentially expected. Where you know corporate and consumer balance sheets are much higher, much better off, um, in much better condition. Uh, than we were in 2006 and 2007, for instance. And so um, I feel that, you know, with the ample cash, there's also, okay, like, let's be honest, right? There are, there's still a lot of dry powder out there in the private asset space that, you know, would love to come in and take advantage of of any sort of distress or softening and probably wouldn't wait until it is truly distressed. And so there is a little bit less concern. Um, I think, you know, if you talk to distressed debt managers, for instance, I mean, they've been waiting for ten years for an opportunity to buy anything that remotely sounds like or seems like distress. Um, but I, so I think it's it's less about um, kind of true distress and more about finding, you know, potentially some pockets in the credit markets that are softer and and could potentially be. Benefited by managers in particular who know how to work out credit. I mean, that is a that is quickly becoming something that people don't know how to do, um, and they don't know how to assess the risk of a company that needs to refinance and can't necessarily refinance. And what is that if you step into that void for them? You know, what should you charge? And you know, how do you monetize that? So I just look at that as sort of a longer term. Opportunity to say, you know, not everything that's been afforded a investment grade credit rating or even, you know, higher high yields credit rating maybe deserves that. Um, but you, it's not going to be um, a one size fits all opportunity, which is why I think that you know operating in the private space for that probably makes better sense than expecting there to just be some sort of huge spread blowout. And, and being able to capture that in the public market.
3: And you mentioned at the, at the start of those comments, trend following, um, you know, pessimism around the space, maybe in 2019, the changed environment that we're seeing in, in FX. And as you say, you know, rates were anchored at zero around the world. Now we're seeing those very much those divergences. Um, you know, I, I've also seen the argument made that with this kind of new theme of deglobalization, that maybe. know there's less of a tendency back towards equilibrium in currencies because you know if something's cheap in china you know western companies don't want to produce it there anymore because uh, of all of those issues around supply chains so this enhanced currency volatility may be part of the the new era along with obviously we're seeing um you know much more volatile commodity markets as well so with all of that would you be more open to the, the kind of managed futures macro space now, or is that always kind of one that 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 people are have a bit of uh, uncertainty about?
0: So it, it's the it. I find it to be one of the most interesting asset classes because if you are a true um, ambassador or evangelist for diversification, then you should have managed futures in your um, in your portfolio because they are you know. Essentially, not correlated. Um, the problem is, is that um, you know that lack of correlation in periods where other assets are going up has always been a challenging one for, particularly, I would say, for private clients to really wrap their head around. There's also not, you know, when you're looking at you know the underlying holdings of one of those strategies you know, there's nothing that is going to resonate that, you know, our private client can grab onto and be like, yeah, I get it. You know, I really understand that. Um, with that said, um, you know, I, I think that there, we could be ushering in a new environment where that could be more competitive. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what that, uh, implementation or allocation ends up looking like. I do know that, um, it is something that I was just, I was, you know, attending a conference here in Boston a couple of weeks ago and was talking with one of the managers in that space. And we've known each other for, you know, 15 years. And I said, hey, how's it going? And I was like, you know, they're like, hey, do you want to chat? And I'm like, maybe, you know, it's, it seems like we're entering into this environment. And, and this is a space where um, one of the things I always tell people is that I think it's important to always acknowledge that as an allocator it's your job to make the best decisions with the information that you have but you can always supplement that information uh, you know with experts from the space and so you know my podcast the other day with uh, a member of our fx team that was not only for our clients benefit but it was for my benefit too because i know this is a shifting dynamic and so i i i would i would not be surprised to see more particularly in the private wealth space more allocators looking at the managed future space again and really trying to determine what has changed. I mean, the players have changed too, right? How are you... So it's it's sort of a, I would say, a, an area where a, a, a refocused emphasis, at least from a due diligence perspective, is probably warranted because we are likely to enter into an environment that is more akin to what we saw prior to the financial crisis. And those strategies were able to to deliver performance and I, I think that that's that's worth a worth an acknowledgement in this environment.
3: Absolutely, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that's certainly what we saw after the two thousand eight was a lot more interest in the space. And uh, but you know, <clears throat> some people might say from a fundamental perspective, there may even be more structural shifts underway at the moment. But um, that's obviously speaking from the managed futures uh, <coughs> perspective. But you touched on you know uh, due diligence there, so it's a good segue into manager selection and I know you come from a kind of a manager selection background um so do you find that as a different kind of disciplined um manager selection you know relative to to doing asset allocation
0: I do um but I think it has I really think that um the way that I've always looked at it is that um you can find an incredibly interesting theme or market opportunity um or you could find a really focus on an incredibly interesting manager and they have a great process, but, you know, unless there's an intersection of those two um, you're not fully capturing the opportunity. And so I always look at it in terms of like, I think that something like trade finance, for instance, is just incredibly interesting. It is a, it is a a very um, esoteric niche opportunity set the problem is, is that you know you, you then need to find a manager that institutional quality, uh, sustainable process, um, you can feel comfortable, you know putting in your portfolios and being partnered with them for a long time. And like that's the, the disconnect there. And then there's a, a, even more strategies than I can count where you you're like, oh, this is a really interesting strategy. It's an interesting team. But I mean, based on our worldview over here in the market, this is going to be a long time. So I would say the way we look at it is um, from an allocate, like the allocation sort of longer term allocation, thematic ideas tend to drive idea generation on the manager side. But if there is a manager that we find through our process that we think is really interesting, but we just are waiting for that market opportunity, you know, we've had managers kind of on the watch list for a couple of years until we felt like the the environment was supportive for them because we, we really do try to create, um, a level of curation in our portfolio that makes sense. Uh, it's not too limited, but it's also not um, it's not meant to be inclusive of the entire investment universe at any given time. It's really focused on, you know, if we're allocating capital over the next few years, what are the types of strategies we should be utilizing?
3: And, you know, you say if you come across a great manager or a great team, you know, so what does that look like or what are the kinds of criteria you have for assessing, you know, obviously there's, I guess, the qualitative, quantitative um, factors, but, you know, taking a step back and, and the managers, you really, you know, rate it over time, any characteristics um, that you would think stand out uh, in, in, in great managers?
0: Yeah, so our team has done an incredible job of focusing over the last few years on on refining our approach and what makes it different. And I think one of the things that they've very much focused on, um, which I which I think lends itself to. Um, probably a, a, a good positioning, if you will, going into the next few years is this idea of continuous improvement and the the fact that we are we believe we are in a, a very dynamic period for the markets, for the economy globally, for what's happening in terms of um expectations for asset classes are changing, expectations for return are changing. And so seeing managers that can be introspective, um I hate to use the word humble but but acknowledge where their process may need to change. I think from an institutional lens the the check boxes were always any process people change, you know, process people philosophy changes and and if you said no that was a positive. And actually for us saying no over and over again for years and years Against the backdrop of a shifting environment doesn't make a lot of sense, and so um, the other thing is, you know, diversity of thought, and so thinking about the fact that, you know, at at some of the and some of the best firms, uh, bringing in, you know, perhaps team members who haven't been working, you know, quote, unquote, on Wall Street for their entire existence, you know, provides a different lens. I mean, I know when I go out into the field and I meet with actual companies, um, I get a much better sense of, you know, what I'm reading in the data um, in terms of how that is actually being expressed by these companies and the challenges. And it's the same thing, right? Go out there and find experts in the space. So we look at, you know, how is, if it's a, a given manager, you know what's worked over time. What parts of their process do they think are critical to being able to continue to produce similar strong returns? Um, but what ways have they changed their process? You know, or are looking to change their process? And is that is that ongoing introspection actually a part of their firm, a fabric of their firm, or is it something that only occurs when a a, a calamitous mistake has been made um and and so i think that 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 allows us to um see the see the manager as kind of some something that's evolving they're evolving their process and so we can see it as a longer term relationship because we know that they're going to continue to evolve just as we're evolving in our thought processes
3: interesting um it's um, yeah. One of the things you find in the managed feature space as well is that it, there's a, there's kind of constant tension between looking for ongoing improvement and then, you know, you know, in style uh, drift or you know, in excessive tinkering. But but yeah, I hear. I think it's a great, very good point about that kind of uh, introsper- introspection. But even without the calamitous error, as you say, it's that's If you can have that when it's not just being forced by by some kind of um, big down month or a big big down year, Um and in terms of, you know, that process for selecting managers, obviously, you know, it's easy to have your checklist of people, process, uh, whatever else that, that everybody does. Um, but then you get to the end of it and then you realize, well, actually, we've been just been influenced by some kind of behavioral bias here. Um, do, you, do, you, uh, do you find that uh, in the manager selection process? And have you developed any kind of skills for kind of keeping, keeping those in check?
0: We do have a we have a um, we have a process by by which our manager selection team, you know, sort of lays out their process for selection of a manager to our broader investment policy committee. And I think it's a really good one because it affords us the opportunity to ask questions. And I think that um, it's improved the process over time um, in terms of of being able to Question the team being able to point out things and seeing those um, those types of questions be further integrated into the process on a go forward basis has been a pretty clear um, positive result from that. I think the other thing too is that, like I said, I I think it's when you're working with private clients in particular, um, and I think just across the board, I think that investment people have a tendency sometimes to to end up in sort of intellectual silos. So this is a really interesting manager. This is a really interesting theme, you know, and and become somewhat dogmatic and then really not hear or respond to feedback from the field that explains why, you know, this isn't, you know, a particularly compelling opportunity, despite the fact that the team is really interested in it. So I would say the, the, the bias that I try to make sure is that, you know, we're we're not attempting to find we're not attempting to find the next awesome strategy to the to the um, expense of something that actually can be utilized as part of client solutions. And so, um, and that's why I think it's um, it's really important to have a good dialogue between you know the the advisors in our case and the strategy folks on my team and then the managers folks to to make sure that we're all listening to each other and assimilating that that feedback into our process because if you're not doing that you end up with a bunch of strategies on your platform that nobody's using and that's not, that's frustrating for the manager search team it's frustrating for the investment strategy folks who are trying to put together best ideas portfolios. And it's frustrating for the advisors because they don't feel heard in terms of what types of solutions their clients are looking for
3: or needing. Okay. And in terms of that process for onboarding, it sounds like, is it the case that the manager selection team bring through the managers and then there's a kind of a, 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 a team overseeing that and questioning that? Is that kind of, set, I guess that has been, set up as the the process to ensure that kind of check and uh, pushback is. Um, so um, can you talk a little bit more about that process or, or how you've constructed it to ensure that the rigor around that?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's incredibly important in terms of just, and, and it's really not, it's really not, the the purpose is not to sort of check each field in terms of the due diligence questionnaires. And it's, it's to make sure that, we're all working together. We believe that um, the benefit of working in a firm that is um, collaborative is to be able to leverage the expertise of different folks. And so while my background is in manager search, I mean, you know, there are a lot of other people that are on the senior team for investments that don't have a background in that, but they have a background in fixed income, or they have a background in um, equities, or they have a background in building out portfolios for clients in terms of you know suitability and, and um modeling. And so those those folks can bring up questions that if you're because I was in manager certs for a long time, right? So I I I think I'm more sensitive to the potential for this um, intellectual isolation than other people are, because I know what it's like to get into a room with a manager and just be blown away and be so excited and you want to get them on the platform. And then you realize, oh, wait, I don't I don't know that I can actually explain that because that's another thing that I think people forget managers out in the field, right? they, They don't have time, especially when you start to grow as an advisory force, they don't have time to. Um, sell their strategy internally, right? They don't have time to be inside. So we're really the ambassadors and the mouthpieces for these strategies. And if if I can't explain it to my advisors, how are they going to explain it to their clients? And how are they going to be able to create that rationale? So, um, so as part of this, I think just having this oversight in terms of, yes, we, I mean, for the most part, it's really just to to enhance the due diligence or enhance the selection process overall, this oversight mechanism. But it really does allow us if there's something that is really concerning um, from the committee's perspective, um, you know, I as the CIO can obviously just not utilize the strategy and say, listen, we're not gonna use this. Um, But I would much prefer to have that ongoing dialogue between a broader group, because I do think it results in a stronger process when you have this diversity of thought and again, it's not, you wanna make sure that you're not having the subject matter experts be drowned out by people with a bunch of sort of what I would call what about this questions. Um, But you want to make sure that if there are real – there is real pushback that we address that and that we make sure that we've documented that as a potential concern and that we have done some work on it. And so I think as a a manager, as a leader, ensuring that everybody who is a subject matter expert is given the proper – voice and that their opinion is weighted appropriately, but that also offering up this opportunity for collaboration and thought sharing is a way to to improve the process over time.
3: I just wanted to shift yours a, a little bit um and get your perspective on the industry more generally obviously you've been um in an organization that has gone through a couple of um or um, acquisitions and um, mergers um and there's obviously a general trend towards consolidation in the ria industry um in the u.s you know what's what's your thoughts on that is it um I guess this race for scale, is it a good thing? Do you think it's going to lead to better offerings for clients? Um, Is there a trend towards delivering more institutional solutions or is that kind of a simplification? Or, I mean, what's your perspective on on where all of that is heading?
0: This is a really interesting question because it's one that um, I've been talking about a lot, actually, with a lot of different folks along the along the uh, frontier, um, in the space. So, um, you know, when I started back in an, a registered investment advisor in 2006, um, you know, product teams, wholesalers didn't even have a dedicated RAA channel. We were either covered by the bank trust team or the broker dealer team or, um, and I, and I think that what we're seeing today is we're seeing just another, like, pendulum swinging in terms of we had all of these um, brokers who sort of left and went out on their own, and, you know, the independent broker-dealer, and um, and we had a lot of RIAs that were small, and they were growing. Um, but I think the, um, you know, the the, the challenge is that, you know, once you hit a certain asset size, you know, you do have to make, you know, increasing investments, not only in operations and technology and compliance, but you also have to widen your aperture in terms of, well, maybe we do need to work with more than one custodian. Maybe we do need to be able to take in, um, you know, alternative investments that we haven't vetted. And all of that comes with increasing costs and complexity. And so I think now, you know, for most advisors, what they want to do is advise. Um, they want to be meeting with clients. They want to. They want to be um, sharing their thoughts. They want to be relationship managers, and a lot of those other things that I just talked about sort of dilute the time that they're able to take. And so, with most RAAs being led by a few strong advisors, I think that that's led itself to this um, this consolidation effort. However, I do think that they're. Um, you know, there's probably a pendulum sw- shift back at some point where people say, you know what, we, we probably can do more in terms of FinTech. We probably can do more for less in terms of outsourcing a lot of these solutions. And so um, I think consolidation is important um, also because it provides uh, succession. I think one of the best things about what's happened in terms of consolidation is that um, people are acknowledging that they wanna make sure their clients are in good hands. Um, when they're no longer managing those assets. And so a lot of the roll-up sort of opportunities have been because cl- those those advisors are really looking out for the best interests of their clients and making sure that they are in a structure that they can continue to receive great advice and service, even you know as the, that particular advisor transitions. Uh, but I do think what it could create on the investment side is... A lot of overlap in offering because as you get bigger, you need to be able to allocate more assets. Um, and you know, I think for some of these um, larger firms, you know, some of them have a very um, hands-on approach in terms of the investments for the underlying underlying groups, and some don't. Um, but I think that'll be interesting to see. Um, and then the last thing. You know, this is a longer answer than you were looking for, but the last thing is really—I mean, everybody wants to be in the private client space now. I mean, you look at all these institutional firms that are founding their own RIAs that were our asset managers, our product producers, right? Like, oh, why do—why are we going to these RIAs and then they're putting a fee on top of it? Like, why we want that? You know, that's that's a really interesting change because. Dealing with people like me and my team versus dealing with the end clients for some of these large asset managers, this is a whole different ballgame. So I'm interested to see how how successful those efforts are. Um, but again, I think it just comes down to private clients. RAA clients are, you know, know—we're they're in high demand and there's a lot of competition for them. And so companies are just trying to find different ways to capture that that sort of growing universe of of very important investment opportunities.
3: Hmm. But so, from an investment perspective, you think greater similarity maybe between the offerings as everybody gets bigger and has to be able to deploy large amounts of capital. That, that's kind of your potential takeaway, I guess, is it?
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, it's, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, It's much easier to apply kind of an institutional framework. If you're going across the board, you have a scorecard, you, you know, you don't, you don't need, you're not, you're probably not, again, I don't work in one of those larger firms, um, but um, that have been sort of this, this kind of aggregator model, but I, I don't know that you're that incentivized to um, work with a manager, for instance, that has a really high minimum that only can be appropriate for your high net worth. I mean, ultra high net worth and family office clients, for instance, um, for us, um, even if those strategies are not for the broad footprint of our client base, wow, they're really, I mean, they're a way to, to get exposure to a new space. They're a way to get exposure to other investors. Um, that, you know, they have many, advantages that can be afforded to the due diligence process just by partnering with those types of strategies. And I feel like those teams may miss out on some of that if they're really just focused on on what can we do for the broad set of clients that we're now working with.
3: Interesting. Um, well, interesting space. It's obviously going in, in the state of a lot of flux at the moment. So we'll see how all of that shapes up. Um, before we wrap up, we normally just uh, like to ask our guests, you know, but obviously we've talked about your journey towards becoming CIO. If you were to give some advice to people starting off or not quite as far along in their careers as you are about skills to develop, things to read, things to do, if they want to, you know, run multi-asset portfolios, do asset allocation for private clients and ultimately be a CIO, uh, what would you say to people?
0: So there's there's sort of two things that I would say. One is communication, having the ability to communicate across multiple mediums in verbally, in writing, in person, in large groups, uh, making sure that your messaging resonates, remembering that um, the use of of terms and phrasing and narratives that people can really understand and can digest but also reiterate is really important. I, I think that that's something that I've learned, that you know you don't have to use a lot of jargon to sound really smart. What you have to do is make people understand what you're saying, and that gives you much more credibility. The, the thing on the path... So I think what is... And this probably is is maybe a little bit different from my seat because I'm a, a woman who's a, a little bit on the younger side. Um, when I came into a chief investment officer role, I think that depending on who you work for and who you work around and what you see in your community, um, there's a tendency to want to be like other people who are in that position. So for instance, if your head of research is a certain way and their skills are XYZ, you believe that you have to have those same skills to be in that position. And someone told me a long time ago, um, before I became the CIO, they said, I I made a comment like, well, I'm not really good at this. And they're like, the, the role is whatever you make of it. And so, just having widening your aperture to say, what what type of director of research do I want to be? What type of analyst do I want to be? Um, what are my strengths, and what can I bring to the table for the company uh, as part of that? And so, you know. Not every chief investment officer does their job the way I do my job, um, and some people do the job wildly differently. But what I've done is I've said, these are the things that I think I bring to the table. This is where I can benefit the company most. Um, and then I filled my team with people that maybe do those things that I don't do as well um, in order to uh, to create a, a, a better group and a better function. And so just don't get caught up in trying to think about what is the ideal XYZ person for a position try to think about i want to get to that position and how do i make it uh how do i make myself the best that i can be to be able to contribute to the company and it's just much easier than trying to follow directly in someone else's footsteps
3: great it sounds um sounds like very sound advice um well thank you very (laughs) much uh uh, I, i do actually think that that makes an awful lot of sense um but um we're over an hour or so um Uh, I'd just like to say thanks very much for coming on. It's been great speaking to you. Um, We've learned
2: a lot. Um, So with that, I'll pass back to Niels. Thank you so much, Alan and Shannon, for some great insights into the registered investment advisor world and where you managed to cover quite a lot of ground. I thought it was really interesting to hear Shannon talk about how the younger generation is starting to change their requirements when it comes to the expected returns, but also the risk levels they're willing to take, as this may well drive a change in how asset allocation is done for these generations. Also, I appreciated Shannon's acknowledgement that alternatives such as managed futures and trend following should play a bigger role in portfolios, even if it's still a bit of an uphill battle to explain the lower returns during time of strong equity bull markets. Shannon's insights as to what they look for in their manager selection, in terms of identifying the critical parts of a manager's process, but also how the manager is looking to improve upon these, was quite interesting. But of course, there are so many more gems in this conversation. That's it for this episode. Make sure you go and follow Shannon and Alan's work because as you can tell from today's conversation, it is so important that you understand what is going on from a global macro point of view in order to allocate capital well. And we really look forward to sharing more of these insights as our series continue. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.